If I were to say to you this morning, uh, famous be the Queen of England, you might say, all right, we're in America, we shouldn't be concerned about that. But you also might say, you don't need to say anything like that because it's been in the news for the last however many weeks, right? She doesn't need me saying it to make her more famous. And yet, there is a degree to which that's true in our passage this morning. God doesn't need us saying that he's blessed, showing him honor, telling other people about him to give him the position that he deserves because he has it whether we do those things or not. And yet there is a degree to which the way that we live enhances the reputation of God before the world around us or undermines it. Going back to the illustration I just said a moment ago, the extent to which the royal family has scandals, that is a detriment, right? It's famous but infamy, right? The extent that they are honorable and live the right way, then their fame is something that is attributed to them as something they're worthy of, right? And the same thing is true of God. The way that we live creates an effect on people's perception of God that is good or bad. What does this look like? Well, last week, before we get there, last week we saw that Peter's overall theme for the book is to stand fast in God's true grace and that God gave a message of hope to sustain them in trials. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, where Peter explores some of the details of God's grace in salvation in, in, in uh, just sort of this rich unfolding of what God has done and will do. And I think we're going to see from these verses that God deserves blessing by your rejoicing in salvation through trials. So what is the thing that you can do that adds to the honor of God's reputation in the world? It is the degree to which we rejoice in salvation through trials. First of all, we see, I think, in verses 3 through 5, that God deserves blessing for the blessings of salvation He has blessed you with. God deserves blessing for the blessings of salvation He's blessed you with. What has God done in salvation? Well, first of all, if you know Him today, God caused you to be born again by the same power that raised Jesus. We see that God showed you mercy by giving you new life. It says, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. This idea of born again was the thing that Nicodemus got tripped up over in John chapter 3. I'm an old man. I'm also a man. There's no way I can go back and be born again, right? Even if he was 20 pounds, and grown men are not 20 pounds, There's no way he could be born again. It just doesn't work, right? He got stuck on this picture that God was giving through Jesus and took it literally when Jesus was talking about a spiritual reality. You need new spiritual life. In the same way that a baby's life becomes visible by being born, you need also to be born again. Not in the old way, according to the flesh, but through repentance and faith, becoming connected to me. And so what Peter is talking about here is the same kind of idea. God has caused those who are saints, and we know that he's talking to saints because he talks about those who reside as aliens, verse 1, those who are scattered throughout these various regions, but those who, according to God's foreknowledge, by the work of the Spirit, have come to obey Jesus Christ through sprinkling by his blood. Those for whom that is true... God has caused you to be born again. God has given you new spiritual life, not by a process of physical birth, 
not by a repeat of what already happened once for some of us a long time ago, but by our relationship with Jesus. In this moment in which we believe and from our side of things respond in faith, God has given spiritual life, forgiven us of sins, added us to his family, uh, dealt with all of these things connected with it, and, and secured and guaranteed all the blessings of salvation for us. In that moment, all of these things are happening. And Peter describes it here as causing to be born again. Think of the people that you love most in the world. If their lives were threatened, could you ultimately do anything to save them? We say, yes, absolutely, we would try. But could you if it was nuclear fallout or some sort of worldwide pandemic that just killed everyone it came in contact with or some other kind of disaster at the end of the day, as much as we like those kind of movies where they get in the car and the pavement's cracking behind them and they live anyway, you and I can't ultimately save the people around us. But when you and I were dead in our sins, if you've trusted in Jesus, God has done for you what you and I cannot do for the people that we love and care most about in this world, giving spiritual life. And it took God no effort. There was no running around hoping all the pieces fall into place so you can escape the disaster. God just did it. In the same way that he spoke the world into existence, in the same way that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, in the same way that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. And Peter links God's power in giving us life in salvation to the resurrection of Jesus. If God could raise Jesus, what does that mean for any of the promises that are made certain by his resurrection power. There should be no question in our minds that God is going to accomplish what he has promised. He caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what he's saying. Your hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And what is this hope? This hope is God has made promises. Is he going to keep them? Yes. God has said, if you follow me, you will be a part of my family and I will dwell with you forever. Why is our hope alive? Why is it not a foolish hope, an empty hope, a worthless hope? Because Jesus is alive. So it's a living hope, a certain hope, a confident hope, because Jesus is alive. God caused you to be born again, not just to get you out of hell, but to receive an unbelievably amazing inheritance. And here's how this inheritance is different from things that we experience in this life. Think of your most prized possession. Let's just say by way of illustration that it's a, a favorite sweater. You go get it out for the winter, and you find that some kind of bug has eaten holes all in it. Or you can't find it. Did you lose it the last time you moved or cleaned out your room? Or you think, you know what? That friend of mine borrowed some stuff a while back. I wonder if it never got returned. That's what happens to life on earth, things that we prize possessions that we have. They get destroyed, they get lost, they get taken. Now, we all know that clothing doesn't last that long. I mean, I have some shirts in my drawer that are probably pushing 20 years old, and I probably should just throw them away because they're starting to get really threadbare and lots of holes in them. So let's take something that lasts a little bit longer, right? Maybe it's a cast iron skillet that's something that got passed down to you from your grandparents. Or maybe it's a favorite hammer that your dad used. 
What happens to all those things too? They rust. They wear out. Think back to the oldest thing that you've ever owned. I came across a book when I was cleaning my basement last week that said something about, I think, 1857 in it. That's a pretty old book, right? That's still not even 200 years old. These things still wear out. They still fall apart. They get lost. They get taken. How long will God's salvation last? Can it be threatened by wear and tear, the corruption of sin, or loss? And the answer is no. It says four things about it here. Your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Not corrupted, not getting worn out, cannot be destroyed. Unlike our earthly inheritances, whatever they may be, which don't last or corrupted by sin and wear out or get lost and stolen. Our inheritance in heaven, if we know Jesus and believed in him, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Your inheritance, it says here, is reserved for you in heaven. How many of you have made a reservation with an airline or for some sort of trip and they lost your reservation? The hotel says, we don't have anybody by that name that made a reservation. If it's reserved in heaven, you know who's keeping track of it? God is. Do you know what can't happen to it? It can't get lost. There's no double booking. There's no uncertainty. There's no question that it's going to be a problem when you get there and say, oh, sorry, your name's not on the list. If you know Jesus, your inheritance is reserved for you in heaven. Your inheritance is guaranteed by God's resurrection power. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. What power? The power by which he spoke the world into existence, the power by which he raised Jesus from the dead, that power that God has demonstrated time and time again in the pages of Scripture, that's the power that guarantees your inheritance. So you know what that means? It means nobody can bump you out of your spot in line and say, I'm going to step in and forget about you getting the thing that was promised to you. If Jesus is alive, and he is, nothing can take away what has been promised to you. And then fourthly, your inheritance is secure until your salvation is revealed in that final day. It says, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God has your inheritance ready to go when Jesus returns. Sometimes when we're waiting for things to get made or get shipped or whatever, we say, okay, is this going to get finished in time? Are there going to be supply chain issues? Is it going to show up? Is it going to get lost in the mail? We don't have to worry about that with the inheritance that God has promised because it is going to be revealed when God is ready in the last time. Now, it says, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, but I thought I have salvation right now. And the reality of salvation is that there are aspects of it which we experience here and now, and the rest of the things connected with it are so certain that they can be spoken of as already existing, but the reality is there's many of the blessings of salvation that we do not yet know. How many of you here today have no sin whatsoever remaining? If you raise your hand, I'm going to tell you kindly that you're a liar because we're all still having some aspect of sin to deal with in our lives. That blessing of salvation to be freed not only from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but also the very presence of sin, 
That doesn't happen until we stand before Jesus. We die in the course of this life where Jesus comes back and takes us to be with him. That blessing of salvation has not yet taken place. The, the aspect of salvation in which we get to see God day by day, face to face, never any separation, that has not yet happened. And so many more things we could list off. Now, are they certain? Yes, because all of that is part of the inheritance for those who are trusting in God through Jesus. They're protected by God's power. All of those things with salvation will be revealed in that last time when Jesus comes back but we don't have them quite yet. Because these things are true, because God deserves blessing for the salvation that he has blessed you with, you can keep rejoicing through trials. We see this in verses 6 through 9. You can keep rejoicing through trials, first of all, because they are short and also because they achieve God's purpose for you. Let's talk about that uh, first phrase. You can rejoice in trials because they're for a little while. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. Now, what is a little while? What is a little while depends on many things. If you're five, a little while is like the two seconds until you ask your mom again for the thing you've already asked her 50 times for. If you are looking forward to some significant event, right? graduation, wedding, job promotion, something like that, a little while might be a matter of weeks, days, or months. If you have lived a long and full life, a little while might be much longer for you than it is for someone whose life is proportionally shorter. When you're 10, a summer feels like a really big part of your life, right? If you're 100, a summer feels like a really short part of your life, right? What is a little while? Well, Moses talks about in Psalm 90 this idea of living for 70 or 80 years on average, right? That's a good long life according to his expectation at that time. He himself lived for about 120, so he had more than the average, right? Other people's lives were cut short even sooner. But let's just use that as, as an example. So 80 years seems like a long time, right? And in every one of those 80 years, 365 days, 24 hours, lots of minutes, thousands of seconds. Compare, compare those 80 years to the time that our country has existed. And we could say, did it start in 1776 or 1789 or, you know, where in there did it start? Uh, our country has been around more than 200 years, so 80 years is a fraction of that, but it's a decent portion of it, right? Compare 80 years to uh, the time that has elapsed since Jesus walked the earth. 80 years relative to 20, uh, close to 2,100 years. It's a much smaller fraction, right? Compare 80 years to the time since the world began. People argue about how long that was. Let's go with the conservative number of 6,000 years. 80 into 6,000 is a much smaller percentage, right? Now we begin to approach the concept of eternity. 
in which time, I don't know if I would say loses all meaning, but perhaps becomes irrelevant because there's no endpoint. Probably the first time you heard about this in math class, that, that the number line is this thing with an arrow on it that extends infinitely in either direction. You're like, either I don't care about this, I'd rather be doing something else, or you stopped and you thought about it and you thought, what does that really mean that it doesn't end? I can think of one, I can think of a billion, but then it gets really fuzzy after that, right? So when Peter says, for a little while, a little while could be all of those 80 years that God gives you, or 90, or 100, or 20. A little while could be a few days. A little while could be a number of months. He doesn't define what a little while is, but compared to the scope of the plan that God is unfolding and the extent of eternity, which is a strange phrase to say because we can't really put boundaries on it, compared to that, the trials that we suffer in this life are all of them for a little while, no matter how difficult and how long they last. And what comes after? Life forever with God. And it's hard for us to see the value of those things because we are so bound up in the experience of time and in the attitudes of our culture and in our own wants and desires that it is hard for us to say suffering for a little while compared to all the things I could possibly want for a little while, which one am I going to pick? The choice only becomes clear when we compare those things with what comes after, right? It is easy to grow weary in well-doing. God said, here's how I want you to live. Okay, I can do that today. Right? What about for a week? What about for a month? What about for a year? What about for decades? If somebody said to you, you can never, ever eat ice cream again, Maybe your thing's not ice cream. Maybe it's chocolate. Maybe it's pecan pie. Maybe it's hamburgers. Maybe it's fruit. I don't know. Whatever that is, that thing that, that's food that you enjoy most in the world, somebody said you can never have this again. It would be one thing to say no to it for a little while, but to keep saying no to it for to stretch out further and further, that becomes hard. And so I think for many of us, the problem is not that we forget that heaven is a good thing and that God is real, but sometimes we just get tired of following him. So we need encouragement. So what's a summary of some truth that we find in the Bible about what this looks like? The song is titled Almost Home, and it says, This road will be hard, but we win in the end simply because of Jesus in us. It's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey, even when it feels long. Find strength in each step, knowing heaven is cheering you on. Picks up imagery from Hebrews and several other places. If we can remember that though it seems long, it is not compared to eternity that the end goal is sort of this 
this grandstand bleachers full of saints who've gone before us and God himself saying, you can finish the race, it provides strength and encouragement for us to press on despite trials. You can rejoice in trials because they are short. You can also rejoice in trials because their end result is incredibly valuable. Look at verse 7. Trials show that your faith is real and more precious than gold. Refining demands heat to burn off impurities. It's not something we're necessarily really familiar with because we don't really do that sort of work often. Uh, But Peter, I think, is picking up on some Old Testament imagery that we see quite often in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 66, verse 10 says, You have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. There was a passage that we saw in Isaiah. um, Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 10. And it said there, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Jeremiah said a similar thing in Jeremiah chapter 9. In Jeremiah 9, verse 7, he said, I will refine them and assay them, for what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? We see a similar idea in Daniel chapter 11. In actually two places, Daniel 11.35 and also Daniel 12.10. And it says there, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. And then also in chapter 12 and verse 10, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And it goes on as well, uh, Zechariah 13.9 and Malachi 3.3. There is this idea that God uses trials like the heat of a furnace to remove the impurities of sin from his people. Trials are an opportunity for faith to be proved. Why does faith need to be proved? It's easy to say, I believe, when life is easy and short. It is harder to say, I believe, when life seems to fall apart or stretches out for a long time. When those you love die, when your body breaks, when you grow old, or when people hate you for loving God, when you're attacked for speaking God's truth, these sorts of moments test your faith and show whether it's real or false. And what's the end result of it? Going through those difficulties, either your faith is strengthened and refined and continues, or it breaks. somebody said, here's some gold, and you put it in the furnace, and it's fake, what's going to happen? Probably the whole thing's going to melt up, right? If it has a lower melting point than the furnace. But if it's actually gold, what happens? The impurities melt off, and you have something that's purified that can become something beautiful. It's the difference between finding a gold nugget covered in dirt, mixed in with other things, and something like a wedding band, or a piece of jewelry that is beautiful and made the way that it's supposed to be, right? Beyond that, real faith brings God glory at the return of Christ. So not only do trials show your faith is real and more precious than gold, but then that real faith brings God glory at the return of Jesus. It says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If the point of trials was just to make 
our lives and the things that we believe in attractive to other people, that would be one thing, but God is polishing and refining and working on our lives to present to himself something amazing in the end times. If your faith endures, then the God that you believe in receives glory. If you are made perfect, then as Ephesians 5 says, Jesus has a spotless bride in whom to rejoice. How does that happen? Well, in this context, Peter talks about it happening through a process of refining. In Ephesians 5, it talks about it happening through a washing of water through the Word. Those are two different descriptions of the same process. You encounter God's truth, and it changes you. James says you look at it, it reveals to you in the mirror, here's the flaw, here's the thing that needs to be corrected, and you act on it, and God by His grace changes you. You're washed as with water, you're purified as with fire. All of these are images for what God does as you encounter His Word, experience growth in faith through a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do you keep rejoicing in trials? You keep rejoicing in trials because of your present and future relationship with God himself. Verse 8 makes this clear. You don't see God now, but you love and believe in him with joy. How do we, how do we explain this? Well, does your love for family continue even when you can't see them? Maybe they're on a trip, or maybe they're sick and you can't see them because they're at the hospital for a little while, or something like that. Does that... Does your relationship with them continue even though you don't see them for a, for a little while? Yes. Obviously, there's a difference between that and our relationship with God in that we have seen our family even if we don't see them for a short time period, but we haven't seen God. So it's a little bit harder because we haven't seen him in the first place. And yet, the parallel is this, your love and trust in someone can persist whether you see that person or not. It's no less real because the person is not right in front of you. And it's hard not to see the person you love and trust, but that's what God calls us to do in our relationship with him. Now, I was reflecting on this. What is the difference between our love for God whom we can't see and our love for those who are our family, our friends, who we can't see because they have died? What's the difference between those two things? Because at first glance, they seem to be the same thing. You can't see someone who has died because they're no longer here. Uh, you can't see God because he's a spirit and he's invisible to you. What's the difference between those two things? The difference between those things is God is still available to receive the outflow of our devotion to him. Now, will we be reunited again someday with those we love who have died in Jesus? Yes, the Bible makes that very clear. But in a very real and practical sense, to the extent that love is an action, you can't love and serve someone that you know who has died because they're not around to receive those actions. That doesn't mean they've ceased to exist, but there's a barrier Death has created this barrier between you and them that we can't cross over for now. But God, though we cannot see him, is actively present in a way that he can receive our love and our service. 
And so the reason that I think that this is important is God is not calling us to a mere sentimentality toward him. Because sometimes that's, I think, what we mean when we say, I love so-and-so who has died. I feel a particular way. I think a particular thing. But the reality is, as C.S. Lewis says, the highways have become cul-de-sacs. The actions that used to have a particular endpoint can no longer reach their goal. With God, that is not the case. You and I can serve God though we do not see Him and we can actually love Him and we can actually believe in Him and we can keep doing so until we see Him face to face. The letter concludes with this idea that your faith is a living hope. Not the letter, but this section of the letter. Your faith is a living hope, verse 3, which will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back Verses 5, where it says salvation revealed in the last time. And verse 9, where it says obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And you finally see God. Verse 8 says, for now you do not see him, and you do not see him now, but there's this expectation that we will, overflowing in the blessings God has given you. God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He's given us an inheritance. Verse 7 says, we have this proof of faith more precious than gold. God has given you blessings and those overflow in your life and you return them to God. So when it says, blessed be God, here's what's happening. God has blessed you and to the extent that your life portrays the obedience and faith in God that it ought, you in turn bless God, magnify Him, make Him known, point other people to Him by your continuing faith through trials which purge and purify and refine that faith so that in the end time when Jesus comes back, God takes you and all of the other people who are believing in him and presents them to Jesus as something more valuable than gold. And the way that he has accomplished this is through the difficulties of this life. So that goes back to when it says, if necessary, verse 6. Because there's a degree to which we thought would like it to be not necessary, right? We would like it to be, I don't have to go through these trials because I would rather not go through trials and have the same outcome. But the reality is our lives are shaped and changed by the trials that we have gone through in a way that as best we can tell they would not have been if we never went through those trials. So when you and I face trials, can we, as James says, count it all joy can we, as Peter says, see it as necessary? Can we, as God views it, see it as a good thing? I think that that's what they're calling us to do. That doesn't mean we go out of our way to have a difficult life. There are um, strange segments of professing Christianity that said, oh, well, if a little misery it produces this result, maybe a lot of misery will produce an even greater result. Well, that's the same sort of backward thinking that Paul condemns when he says, if a little sin gives God's grace an opportunity to abound, let's have lots of sin so it can abound even more. That's nonsense. God is the one who determines the degree to which his grace abounds 
and the trials that he brings into our lives. We don't have to be concerned about that part of it and go out of our way to create opportunities to experience trials. They will come as God brings them. But when they do come, Peter is calling us to an attitude that says, God deserves blessing because he has blessed me with salvation. And the way that my life ends up being a blessing and glorifying God is through my rejoicing, even through and especially through the trials that he brings into my life because of what they accomplish. So, as we consider these things and our attitude toward them, I'll give you a little bit more of an excerpt from the song that I quoted earlier. I know that the cross has brought heaven to us. Make no mistake, there's still more to come. When our flesh and our bone are no longer between, where we are right now and where we're meant to be, when all that's been lost is made whole again, when these tears and this pain no longer exist, no more walking, we're running as fast as we can, consider this our second wind. Hold up your head, keep pressing on, we are almost home. Peter is not commanding us to bless God, but if we follow the example of verse 3 and the sense of all these verses, we see that the purpose of our lives is to bring God blessing, glory, and honor. How do we bless God? How can He receive praise and honor through our lives? God gets glory when we rejoice now in the God that we can't see, but we love and trust. When we keep looking for the day when we'll see Him face to face and all the promises of our salvation come true, And so until that day, we press on through and in trials, and God will accomplish His perfect work in us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day that You have given to us. Thank You for these truths of Your Word. Thank You for the correction that it provides to the attitude that says that our lives are meant to be comfortable and easy, and that is the best life to be lived that if we have lots of money and whatever we want, then we will be happy and fulfilled and accomplish the reason that we are in this world for. There's a lot of even so-called Christians that hold out that message as the point of life. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. And if you check off these boxes and send me this money and all these sorts of things, then I will give that to you. But quite honestly, that's the temptation that Satan offered Jesus when he took him up on the Temple Mount and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, turn these stones into bread. If you do what you want, when you want, in the way that I command and worship me, then you will have all of the things that your heart desires. But the reality is, what our heart desires, Lord, is usually not what we actually want, at least not at first. And so help us to see that hard things are often good things. That we shouldn't get stuck in the sorrow of the trials that we go through and forever despair, but we should be changed by our encounter with them because to the extent that you break our lives and put the pieces back together, your light shines through us better. To the extent that we think that we're strong, we don't depend on you, and we don't often serve you faithfully, 
and we don't call other people to run after you. But to the extent that we have more and more awareness of the fact that we are weak and we need your strength and that we are limited in knowledge and we need your wisdom and that ultimately you are the only one that we can find hope in, then we're closer to being and right at the sort of point that you want us to be, that you will use us to do wonderful things. Lord, if our attitude toward trials has been one of resentment and frustration and even anger towards you, help us to turn away from those things and to see them, though hard, though heartbreaking, and though sometimes seemingly unbearable, They are your work in our lives. Lord, help us not to see trials in terms of what we immediately see as results from them as the way by which we measure whether they were worthwhile going through. Help us just take you at your word that you use them to refine us and that they prove faith and that they provide this glorious reward when you come back for you, for us, according to your plan. Help us to live in a way that blesses you and honors you and praises you in our hearts, in the lives of the people around us, in the lives of everybody that we meet. Because you do deserve praise and honor and glory for all that you have done and all that you will continue to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.